0: Hi and welcome to Storytelling Animals. I'm your host Dayton Martindale and uh, my guest today is Thea Riofrancos. Thea is an associate professor of political science at Providence College. Um, she is the author of Resource Radicals from petro to Post-Extractivism in Ecuador, uh, the co-author of A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal, and is working on another book right now called Extraction, The Frontiers of Green Capitalism. She is not just an academic, however, also involved in the eco-socialist Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. I really enjoyed this conversation, uh, and it covers a lot of topics that are very important to me, and I think... Very important more broadly to the left and to environmental movements, uh, we mainly focus on her book Resource Radicals, which is about a conflict in Ecuador between um, a, a leftist government that is unable or unwilling to follow through on the um, demands made by leftist social movements in that country, uh, specifically the, the conflict rides on questions of resource extraction and development Uh, What do you do when it seems like you need to extract resources to to make money, to develop the economy, um, but also people who live near those sites of extraction don't want them to pollute their water or destroy their their homes um, or the non-humans who live there. Again, the book focuses on an Ecuador case study, but this is not a problem unique to Ecuador. And it's also not a problem unique to the fossil fuel economy. Uh, for instance, solar panels or electric cars are certainly cleaner than their fossil fuel powered alternatives, but they still require mining minerals, and often the people who live near these mining sites don't necessarily want uh, there to be mining. So these are really important questions uh, that we should be considering as we transition to a post-fossil fuel economy or at least as we say that we intend to transition to a post-fossil fuel economy um and yeah we also talk about issues like uh the rights of nature in ecuador we talk about you know what is democracy and who is it for so so little questions like that um it's a little longer than our typical episodes uh, because there's a lot to unpack um, and the the audio quality on, on my first couple questions is a little lower but it improves as the episode goes on so I encourage you to stay with it um, thank you for listening as always if you appreciate this episode feel free to like subscribe rate review share it on social media send it to a friend um, or can subscribe on Patreon. Uh, yeah, without further ado. Hi, I'm here with uh, Theo Riofrancos. Thank you so much for coming on Storytelling
1: Animals. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you on. So the the title of your book is Resource Radicals. From Petro-Nationalism to Post-Extractivism in Ecuador. And it's about this political conflict between two different types of resource radicals, or at least two groups who both consider themselves to be radicals in a good way in Ecuador. Um, and I'd like to start just by kind of defining these two currents, the, the Petro-Nationalists and the Post-Extractivists, from the title. Um, so first, there's what you call the radical resource nationalism of the government. Uh, what, what stance are they trying to defend here?
1: Um, so, just to maybe zoom out a little bit, uh, this book takes place in the midst of this historic moment in Latin American history and recent recent history, um, and we could even say, you know, a lot of these patterns inflect the present of Latin America as well. Um, so, in this moment um, around the turn of this millennium, we had two processes unfolding simultaneously. One was what scholars call the pink tide, which was a lot of left wing governments being elected roughly around the same time, starting with Hugo Chavez in 1999 and continuing in one country after another until about roughly two thirds of Latin Americans lived under a center left to more left wing government. Um, and that that's like the height of that is in around 2010. And so the Pink Tide is this major paradigm shift, uh, political paradigm and economic paradigm shift around around the region, and it's a shift because prior to all of these left wing governments getting into power, there were a lot of neoliberal, conservative, and right wing governments in power, right? So it it was it was a major pendulum swing. At the same time, and literally at the same time, but for unrelated causes, uh, there was a big change happening to global markets um, and the global economy, and that is called uh, a commodity boom and this was a particularly intense and sustained commodity boom you know sometimes uh we get a year of high prices for oil or of soy or x or y commodity and it's short and specific this was um different um and it it affected like basically every commodity and what what economists mean by commodities are raw materials so you know beef oil minerals uh timber etc Um, And they all had really high prices. And why this is important to understand the position of left governments that you're asking me about, and I I think it would be kind of hard to understand without these two pieces of context, um, is that Latin America, from colonialism to the present, is a provider or exporter or harvester of these raw materials for global markets. And so these governments, one after the other, came into power on the heels of oftentimes protest movements, social movements, and major citizen discontent with the prevailing, you know, neoliberal status quo. And they also, luckily, in an economic and political sense for them, um, and, um, uh, you know, we'll we'll get into this more, but luckily, we could say to be simplistic, um, they came into power at a moment where the coffers of their, you know, state finances were like bursting open with revenues, royalties, taxes from all of these exports. So they had Lots of money to spend, at least in relative terms, for Latin America on the very social programs and services that they had promised to expand in response to those social movements. Right. So, one of those governments that really exemplifies both of these kind of aspects of the of the historic moment is Rafael Correa, um, who governed Ecuador uh, for a decade, um, from 2007 to 2017, and he reelected multiple times. And, you know, what he promised to do was not just in general to uh, uh, invest more in social services and public infrastructure and to inaugurate, you know, a sort of left wing program uh, that benefited working class and poor Ecuadorians, uh, but to do so specifically by using those resource rents from oil and also from mining um, to benefit ordinary uh, Ecuadorians um, rather than benefit foreign capitalists, uh, you know, the profits of corporations, et cetera. And now to answer your question most directly, um, with that kind of context in in place, the the kind of ideological um, and communicative framing that um, Korea used to promote the use of oil and mining rents in order to address social and economic needs of the population was what I call and and many other scholars call resource nationalism. Right. And this has a long history in Latin America. And it's kind of obvious what it means from the from the words. But, you know, what this is is a sort of idea that resources belong to the nation or the people um, and they should be used for the nation or the people rather than to the benefit of, as I said, like foreign corporations or multinational corporations or in the past colonizers. Right. Or, or uh, you know, imperial projects. Um, and, you know, so what Korea did basically was draw on a long Tradition of of popular support for resource nationalism and put it into practice by um, using the dividends from from oil and mineral exports to fund all of these social programs. Just one sort of final thing to make this, I think, to kind of close the 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 loop a bit and 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 uh, um, m- make it it clear what Korea's positions were. Um, I distinguish in the book. Korea's resource nationalism from more radical versions of the same that inspired it, but that Korea's policies did not fully live up to. And so, you know, just like in all the other Latin American countries that saw left wing governments, Ecuador had, had sustained social protest um, for a couple of decades, um, but, but particularly for the decade before that uh, Korea was elected. And in those protest moments, um, movement participants had really radical ideas with what should happen to Ecuador's resource wealth. They thought it should be not just controlled by the state in like a technocratic or top-down sense, but really in the hands of the people, right? Like workers, democratically managed, redistributed really fundamentally. Um, And Correa kind of implemented a watered-down version of that that didn't expropriate foreign capital. It didn't really nationalize the sectors at all. Um, It just increased the amount of revenues that the state got from contracts with foreign companies and used those revenues to meet social demands um, rather than, you know, to pay off foreign debt or something like that. So it was a shift left, but one that was less radical than what movements had been calling for in the lead-up to his election.
0: And just for for the context, what were some of the social programs that the Correa government was funding?
1: Yeah, and it's and it's important to note that even though I'm I'm sort of making it clear that he his program was less radical than what movements had demanded, it it did it did result in a really substantive um, economic shift in, in Ecuador, not so much in like what we could call in fancy terms, like the model of development or the model of accumulation, which remained extractive in its basis, right? It remained reliant on the extraction of primary resources and their export. But what it changed was who benefited from that extraction, right? And so he, you know, there were all sorts of things. And the most, the easiest way to understand, you know, the impact of these programs is that they really increase the share of social spending so education hospitals housing nutrition sanitation public infrastructure also and in, in, uh, infrastructural investments they expanded the share of those in the uh, budgets in the state budget right so previously the state had actually spent very little on a lot of those essential uh, services programs and um, infrastructures but under Korea they spent much more and the effect was palpable both in terms of like development or what, what, uh, you know, experts called like development indicators. So in terms of not just poverty and inequality, which are super important, but also more granular things like life expectancy or nutritional outcomes or access to clean water, like all of that, um, increased and got better in Ecuador very dramatically under Korea. And then also in other ways, like, you know, walking down the street, um uh in a whether in a big city or a small town or rural area or an urban area, you would see testaments, physical testaments to this uh massive state spending in the form of public works projects, which would always have a big billboard saying this is part of the Citizens Revolution, which was Correa's kind of name for his government and campaign. Um and it would be and they would even say how much was spent, right? So really You know, good comms strategy, we might say, where the government made it very clear where the oil and mineral and other, you know, there's other taxation and normal income and wealth taxation, you know, as well. So where the money was going. And um, this is helpful to popular support, in addition to the fact that, like, infrastructural investments yield a lot of dividends in economies like Ecuador's, right? It, it, It connects people to markets. It allows people to get to work. I mean, the same stuff as anywhere, but, but, you know, we're talking about a a low income country. So those, those investments really have yield major dividends. Um, And, um, um, and so, yeah, those are, I think, some of the concrete effects and programs and investments that I'm, that I'm talking about and that Korea uh, really inaugurated under his government.
0: Yeah. I think it's, I think it's important to keep that in mind in part because I'm sort of instinctually much more sympathetic to, the other side of, of the conflict you draw out in the, in the book, um, which is, you have these indigenous groups in Ecuador who are much more critical of any reliance on um, extraction, whether it be of oil or gold or, or whatever else. So how does this perspective and this movement come to be? Um, and what is their, who makes up this coalition and what's kind of their argument?
1: Yeah, the, the sort of, Interesting twist of my book, if we want to call it that, but also what ends up being some of the the tragedy of this moment that I diagnose and analyze, um, is that the origins of resource, the the radical form of resource nationalism, that that sort of you know grassroots demand for uh, sovereignty and ownership and democratic control over subsurface resources uh, like oil and minerals, the origins of that and the origins of militant opposition to all forms of extraction, which I call anti-extractivism, and I call it that following the movement's own language, Um, the origins of both of those seemingly opposed strands of leftist thought and praxis are the same. And the reason that they're the same is because groups shifted their position over time. And so part of what my book is, is a story of how movements in dynamic interaction with context, uh, with the political landscape, with the global economic um, conjuncture, with geopolitics, sometimes too, in dynamic relationship with those contexts, uh, articulate and also shift and innovate their discourses, their strategies, and their tactics, right? Movements don't have stable political preferences or programs or demands or even identities um, over time. Um, And so, the the story from the we we focused thus far on sort of public policy and the government and the ent- the the entree of the left into power in Ecuador but let's go to the movement end um in the period of neoliberalism um and and I'm not claiming that neoliberalism is over in Latin America I'm talking about it in a political sense so when the political parties And politicians in power subscribe to like uh, a free market dogma, you know, pro private investment, deregulation, austerity, servicing international debts above all else. This is kind of how neoliberalism appears in Latin America. Um, That period was, um, you know, we could date it from like in Ecuador, at least from the late 70s until Korea uh, uh, gets into office. So it's a pretty long period of neoliberal hegemony. And um, in that moment, social movements begin to organize against these policies, which harm working class, indigenous, poor um, uh, people, um, and also uh, Afro-Ecuadorians and, you know, women. And, you know, there are all sorts of populations that disproportionately pay the burden of neoliberal policies, similar to in the U.S., right? This is a global phenomenon. And those movements start to organize. um, And one of their demands among several is that is the one I've already mentioned? But I want to now, you know, put it in its proper sort of movement history context. It's that demand that instead of Ecuador's oil wealth and mineral wealth, and also other, you know, forms of natural wealth like Ecuador is a major shrimp exporter, and you know we could go and other forms of agro exports. We we could go down the list instead of those benefiting multinational or foreign capitalists, they should not only benefit the Ecuadorian people, but be like democratically managed by them. A really transformative vision for changing the bases of the economy. So that that is um that was a demand that multiple movements subscribed to. And in fact, what's remarkable about this moment is its broad coalitional quality, right? So again, from the the um maybe late 80s or early 90s, when protest really takes off against neoliberalism. Um, And one key date is like in 1990, there was the first massive national indigenous uprising. Right. So we had the participation of at that point, recently formed indigenous federations that were national in scope, but went all the way down to the base community and had mediating kind of regional layers. So very coherently and territorially organized indigenous um, movements. Uh, We also had labor movements, we had movements representing urban poor people, so not necessarily through the workplace, but through kind of neighborhood networks. Uh, We had all sorts of movements that in Latin America are often referred to as like the popular sectors. And that just means like anyone who's not an elite, right? So this is in class terms and, and, and often in ethnic and or racial terms, too. Um, and those movements shared a, a program and a set of demands because their enemy was very clear. It was the neoliberal elite that had imposed policies that hurt them all, even if they got hurt in different ways, even if like an indigenous community versus like a mestizo uh, worker in a city might experience the brunt of neoliberalism in different specific ways, they all had a shared enemy. And that's helpful for broad movement organizing, right, as we know. Um and then what happened, right? So, so how do we get from there to anti-extractivism? Correa gets into power, um, not as a leader that it organically came up through those movements, right? So that distinguishes him from, for example, Evo Morales or Lula da Silva, who are other leftists in, in Bolivia and Brazil, respectively, who, whose own trajectories um, what were intertwined with the, the social mobilizations against neoliberalism. um, Korea is different. He's a left-wing economist. He's a heterodox economist. Uh, He his PhD is from the U.S. He's from a middle-class, comfortable middle-class background, and he comes to leftism through, you know, kind of intellectual orientation, right? Um, That that might not be unfamiliar to folks who are listening. That got politicized, like through reading a book or thinking or being in class or whatever. Um, And so Correa doesn't have an organic tie to any of these movements, but he does. He's an extremely adept politician, right? We're going to criticize him at various moments of this podcast, but, you know, I think it can't be denied that he's an extremely skillful politician, as were actually many of the original Pink Tide um, leaders. Um, And so... He's not a movement um, participant um, or leader or union organizer, but he gets it. He understands where the people are at, so to speak, and where the energy is and where the base is. And he does and he's intellectually sympathetic. So he implements programs that these movements had called for, except, as I said, in a watered down, less radical, you know, no expropriation of foreign capital kind of way. And what is very interesting, though, is that in that exact conjuncture, of Korea coming into office and then starting to implement his programs, that sort of really broad left coalition that existed during the neoliberal moment and existed in part as a response and as a protest against that moment, right, um, began to fracture and fragment and also shift its position. So I think that this speaks to, just to ground it in, listen things listeners may already be familiar with i think this just speaks to more generally the challenges of coming to power um for leftists right there's a challenge of getting into power which is everything stacked against you but there's also a challenge once you're in power and often that challenge manifests as coalitions breaking down um or or what was a shared struggle becoming something that that is a site of internal conflict and the the site of internal conflict among the left in Ecuador in the early years of Korea's of government was resource extraction and indigenous rights, which are interconnected. And we'll probably talk about that more later in the program. Um, but because there was this major commodity boom that I mentioned, and because Korea explicitly wanted to you know, ride that boom and channel it to social investment, Korea's government did not see any kind of transition away from extractivism. There was talk of it in his government, and I am attentive to that. But overall, that's not what occurred. And so, what you had was a doubling down of extractivism, or what movements call, you know began to call extractivism, which is this you know deeply extractive um, form of capitalism. Um, at the same time, that a lot of left demands were being met in a mix of rhetoric and policy. And this is a confusing conjuncture for for especially for indigenous activists who had even in the earlier period been much more attentive to the harms of extraction. Even as they didn't call always call for like an end to it, they were on board, or at least at the movement level and the leader level, they uh, indigenous movements were on board with um, nationalization and worker control and democratic management of extraction. They they they. There began to be over time, even before Korea was was elected, like more and more environmentalist discourse among indigenous communities and movements and more, as I said, attention to the harms of extraction. And so Korea comes into power, extraction intensifies um, because of the commodity boom. Um, What ends up happening to that broad coalition is... The parts of it that relate to indigenous movements and to also radical environmental movements, who had already been forging a close connection among one another, began to become critical of the Korea government. They said, you know, this is not enough. It is not enough to redistribute. Uh, It is not enough to pay into social programs. It's not enough to meet this subset of popular demands. We need a more fundamental transformation of the economy. Uh, out of its extractive um, uh, kind of model, which dates to colonialism, and to some other type of economy that is is non-extractive or post-extractive. And so what ended up happening is some communities, movements, and groups that had not previously espoused anti-extractivism in when the left came to power in the context of a commodity boom articulated what I see as a novel, trenchant, and militant critique of a system that they referred to as extractivism. And they began to use the word extractivism much more so than capitalism, than neoliberalism, than imperialism, even though it related to those concepts, right? But extractivism for them was like the fundamental target of their resistance. And so we got this maybe unexpected uh, situation where the left was in power, but there was major left-wing indigenous and environmentalist resistance to that left-wing government, and a deep divide ran through the left as a result.
0: I want to talk more about um, extractivism and the vision of a post-extractive economy later, but um, right now I'm curious sort of what drew you to start researching this this conflict?
1: Um, yeah, thank you for asking that, because I think it's it's always interesting to ask um, scholars or, or, or writers, why, why they work on what they work on. And in my case, the origins of the research topic are, are actually very tied to all the processes that I've been talking about. Um, uh, my, um, my partner and I decided to move to Ecuador in late 2007, and we moved there in January of 2008. Uh, this was prior to graduate school, um, prior to me even knowing if I got accepted to graduate school. In fact, I got my first responses, which were rejections, as it always is, um, while I was living in Quito at that time. Um, so I had no idea whether I'd be going to grad school um, or not. Um, but I had applied and then we we left um, uh, for Latin America. Um, and so, you know, Dan and I moved to Ecuador because both of us had been involved in Latin America solidarity work, which is a type of activism in the U.S. that uh, that is internationalist in its orientation and thinks about the relationship between U.S. foreign policy or trade policy and Latin American um, movements and and people um, and tries to act to prevent sort of the worst forms of of neo-colonialism or imperialism, but also in solidarity directly with with movements and, and what their struggles are in Latin America. So we were involved in that type of activism for a few years before moving to Ecuador. Um, and that was the reason that we moved there. Um, in addition to the fact that we were very curious to kind of witness more firsthand and in a more sustained way uh, a, La- a Latin American country undergoing this left wing transformation, right? So, Korea had been recently elected. Um, um, uh, and, and both Dan and I had spent time in, in Venezuela and in Bolivia and in places, you know. That also had had left wing government. so we were just kind of interested in the general phenomena. We get there, um, and not long after we arrive. Um, so this is in 2008. Um, this is also in the midst of when um, uh, Ecuador is is starting to, or a little bit before, but 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 be, no, it is in the midst. I'm sorry about that. I was just thinking about dates. Um, so this is right in the midst of Ecuador rewriting its constitution, which is important to mention because, um, for a few reasons, and it'll help me answer your question of why I decided to write this. Um, w- one is that a new constitution was a key demand of Ecuadorian social movements. And this was a really important way that Correa honored his democratic mandate. Like he was elected in part because he campaigned saying, I will, I will, uh, uh, you know, uh, kind of set up a constitutional assembly that will be elected by popular vote. There'll be a rewriting of the constitution, etc." Um, and I'll just flag for listeners that are familiar with kind of what's going on in Latin America, that Chile right now is rewriting its constitution, right? So, and, and so have other countries in, in, in recent, in the recent decade. And so rewriting constitutions is a common demand of movements in Latin America. So that was happening at it the time. Is from
0: United States.
1: I know it's totally, yeah, it's amazing what doing research in Latin America on these topics does to make you think it's extremely weird how attached Americans are to, Their constitution. I mean, so much so that it's it's not even an active attachment. It's like just a background common sense that it would be kind of crazy to suggest we have a totally new constitution. But in Latin America, as elsewhere in the world it is more common to rewrite constitutions. And those can be and have been recently in Latin America, very democratic participatory processes, you know, we could nitpick case by case, but Overall, they have seen a lot of movement participation, a lot of civil society kind of scrutiny and participation, and so they are really interesting moments. So this was unfolding while we were there, um, and um, um, the the reason it helps me answer your question, other than you know sort of providing some additional context to what was going on and how momentous it felt, which was what drew us to Ecuador, uh, in addition to how also beautiful the landscapes and and and. Uh, um, just different regions of the country are, which was another motivation, um, is that in that constitutional assembly, as I recount a bit in a couple of the chapters of my book, these fissures between different left understandings and critiques and proposals for extraction and for indigenous rights and sovereignty began to um become salient like these these arguments and debates even within Korea's own party cuz Korea is um what his initial government in in power like his party and and, and ministers and everything are emblematic of that broad left coalition that included indigenous activists, included people that would later become like militant anti-extractive environmentalists, right? So there was a broader tent that narrowed over time. But at this moment, we still have those people, some of them in government um, and, and in this constituent assembly. and But then there's other parts of Korea's party that have um. um uh, you know are more okay with extraction and think of it as like a good engine of development right so these arguments were happening in real time inflected by movement activity and mobilization and demands that were targeting the constituent assembly and i began to realize very quickly just from reading the daily news and talking to activists in ecuador that um that this was going to be a, a point of of conflict um within the left in ecuador that this that the Korea government would most likely be riven to a greater or lesser degree by the question of what to do with extraction, with the model of economic development, and with um, indigenous rights in especially in the territories where valuable subsurface resources exist. And it turned out I was correct. I mean, that hypothesis was correct. And it actually became even more divisive, conflictual, and in ways that I would even describe as tragic, as I mentioned earlier, in terms of how deeply it divided the left, um, uh, it, it, it w- became even more the case than I than I would have predicted, right? So I, you know, years later, then went back to do dissertation field work, and then continued and then wrote a book um, based on that. Um, but but it was sort of witnessing the beginnings of a process that my political intuition told me was going to be a meaningful one. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the constitution. Um, I wonder if you could just kind of go through some of the highlights of of what came out of that with regard to um, environmental protections and indigenous rights.
1: Absolutely. And it's, um, you know, for all of the internal debates in the constituent assembly within Korea's own party, um, and even and, you know, sort of recognizing the fact, as I say very directly in the book, that the constitution is an, is an ambivalent document, meaning it has very different sides to it. Um, and what I kind of show in the book is that both movements and Korea found constitutional justifications for their positions within this kind of really, we might almost call it an unwieldy document, because it's so long, right. And, and so many different political forces are kind of represented in it. And, um, But, you know, I think that ultimately movements, social movements, indigenous movements, environmental movements, uh, campesino, peasant movements, right, Um, movements that were opposing extraction or demanding some fundamental change uh, to Ecuador's political economy, those movements, they marshaled the constitution in their, in defense of their political projects, even more than the government did, much more so, which is a little surprising and interesting that like the constitution became like this popular living document because movements and activists constantly referenced it. Um, whereas in my interviews with bureaucrats or elected officials or, you know, f- folks in the Korea government, it was less common for people to reference it, even though it was like this foundational document of their own government. Right. Um, and the reason for that is that um, the, the resulting constitution is an extremely progressive constitution on environmental grounds and, and in the realm of collective rights, including indigenous, um, uh, and other and rights also of racial um, minorities and in, in, um, in Ecuador, it is the first and thus far, thus far only constitution in the world to recognize the rights of nature. In fact, it's considered like a major innovation of the Ecuadorian constitution and a major contribution to legal thought. Um, there are, other um, countries that like Bolivia that recognize the rights of nature, but not in the Constitution itself, like in ordinary law, the Chilean Constitutional Assembly unfolding right now. Uh, there's a major push there to recognize the rights of nature. So we'll see how this gets applied in other places. But right. quickly
0: to interrupt. Sure, what, please.
1: does what the
0: rights of nature?
1: Mean? Yeah. Yeah. So the rights of nature is um, what's innovative about it. And it might even just sound confusing because we're not used to thinking of nature of having rights is that it. Expands right holding and all of the um, uh, kind of resultant political processes, like being able to defend your rights, like in a court, you know, or stop processes that might infringe on your rights, etc. Um, it extends all of that to nature um, with, the, with the sort of twist that humans are the ones that walk into a courtroom and defend nature's rights on nature's behalf. But nature is the right holder. Um, and so, what this means is that you know, as written in the Constitution, for example, um, ecosystems have a right to regenerate themselves, right? That anything, whether it's an economic activity or a public policy that um, infringes on the regeneration of ecosystems uh, could be grounds for stopping that project or policy or activity for modifying it, um, or for at least temporarily stalling it while a decision is reached in court. And actually, in, in recent years, and including very recently, there have been victories in Ecuador um, against uh, extractive, um, agricultural, other economic projects that would have a serious impact on the environment. It took actually activists, you know, several years to figure out how to win these court cases, because they're not easy for kind of obvious reasons perhaps. But, um, like I witnessed one that I recount a little in the book that, that failed, that tried to stop a large scale open pit mine with disastrous uh, environmental and social impacts in, um, in the, uh, in the Amazon and just beautiful part of Ecuador. Um, uh, but it didn't work right. But over, over time activists learned how to deploy this right in legal settings and as part of movement campaigns and, and have done so successfully. So that's a major innovation of the Ecuadorian constitution. Um, in addition, and I'll, I'll this will be a little shorter to explain because I think it's, it's more straightforward. The constitution has a whole long raft of collective rights. These are rights that uh, apply to, not to individuals, but to collectives, right? To social groups. And so um, uh, indigenous Afro-Ecuadorian and Montubian peoples in, in Ecuador Have rights to cultural integrity, have rights to be consulted prior to extractive or projects or any project that could affect them. Communities, regardless of ethnic or racial character, have the right to environmental consultations if something, uh, some project or policy or sector will affect their environment. You get the idea. There are a lot of collective rights. So, you know, in many ways, the Ecuadorian constitution is what we might think of as like a post-liberal constitution. It's not just about individual rights, and it's not even just about humans, right? It is, um, it gives rights to nature, it gives rights to social groups, it has social and economic rights that individuals and groups have. And it starts off with a very strident and ambitious declaration of popular sovereignty, that that is, you know, that is the root of the legitimacy of the Ecuadorian government is popular sovereignty, um, understood in you know democratic terms. So it it is a document that provides a lot of language that is useful to movements to not just articulate their demands but to give them legal legitimacy um, and to say actually what we're demanding is exactly what the Constitution says. so therefore we're not just demanding this this or that thing or policy. We are in effect demanding that the Constitution be enforced and they they took, movements took their role, anti-extractive movements, indigenous and environmental movements, took their role as constitutional defenders very seriously.
0: Yeah, so one of the areas where this becomes contentious is, you know, what counts as an adequate level of consultation with an indigenous group before some corporation goes in and starts um, mining or drilling in the area. Uh, One of the things that really stuck out to me is... You know, consultation from the corporation's perspective and sometimes from the government's perspective means you go in, you give them the technical and scientific information that says, don't worry, this is safe. And if that community pushes back in any way, that just means they're kind of not understanding the science um, versus more from the the anti-extractivist perspective. They're saying, no, that's that doesn't count as consultation. Uh, you know you actually have to listen to what we say um can you talk a little more about that those two visions of of consultation
1: absolutely and I'm, I'm glad you asked it to me because I didn't really know this when I was doing my research I kind of learned it maybe even more like after after the book was written um but this informational technocratic and like very superficial interpretation of the right to prior consultation is very common. Um, corporations do this everywhere where they need to con- quote unquote, consult people, uh, local people that are affected by their projects. They tend to do exactly what you just described. Right. So what I saw in Ecuador is part of like a global pattern. Um, and so it has a little broader relevance than it might seem to. And And let me just zoom out a little bit and explain what consultation is, and then I'll get into this kind of uh, dispute over how to actually implement it between corporations and and communities. Um, so pri- the right to free, so the full word, the full phrase is free prior and informed consultation, or, and this, you can immediately see why this is politically contentious, it, or consent, right? And some versions of this right talk about both consultation and consent in a sort of slippery way. So just to, to note, for those not familiar, uh, prior consultation and prior consent are international legal norms that Ecuador subscribes to uh, in the form of being party to conventions and declarations from the UN, from the ILO, etc. that set out these rights. And many other Latin American government, uh, excuse me, countries are also party to these. Um, and, what these international norms require is that, uh, specifically for indigenous people, when their territory will be affected, their terito- or territory or environment will be affected by anything—a project, a policy. But what you'll what one will see is that extractive projects are often highlighted as a particular source of harm. Right. So when they'll be affected by a project, a policy, and usually it's something extractive in nature. Um, they have a right to be consulted uh, by, you know, sometimes it's kind of left a little ambiguous, um, and that the goal, however, and this is how the international norms are written, should be to obtain their consent. Um, and that that squishiness, that sort of, like, interpretive ambiguity, like, is the goal to just consult people, which could be really watered down to just, like, a notice on their door saying, by the way, we're going to do this thing, let us know if you have an issue, um, or is the goal like really substantive consent, which means like you have to ask people, yes or no, is this okay? And if they say no, it ought to be an obstacle in some way, legal, administrative, whatever. It should be some kind of obstacle to the project moving forward. And in that ambiguity, we see a lot of under enforcement and superficial enforcement of what could be a really transformative right that gives indigenous communities in this case, though, as I mentioned briefly earlier, in ecuador Um, Non-Indigenous communities also have this right to environmental consultations. Anyway, it could give local communities real leverage, potentially, deciding the fate of extractive projects. And that leverage was precisely what Korea and the most pro-mining and pro-oil actors in his government wanted to avoid. And so this fight over what consultation means begins in the Constitutional Convention, uh, the Constitutional Assembly. And it begins with an argument between including between members of Korea's own party over whether the right should be written as consultation or consent. And the argument against consent was that it would give local communities and, quote, particular interests and minority groups. These are kind of in quotes, but you get the um, sort of allusion to indigenous people or racial or ethnic minorities. It would give them veto power over projects that are in the, quote, national interest. And so that view prevailed. So there is a right to prior consultation, and I want to recognize it. It's important. It was an outcome of Indigenous struggle, but it wasn't a right to prior consent, which was the more radical thing that movements were demanding. And so already there's a compromise in the Constitution. And then this compromise gets further kind of compromised in practice, which is that I'm not sure I would fully call what the government and hand in hand with corporations who play major roles in these, in these like uh, quote unquote consultation processes, because they have all of the information on their project, the potential environmental impacts, et cetera. Um, I don't know that I'd really even call them consultations. I call them, and actually this is even the language of, of the um, uh, government and corporations. I call them like information sessions. And right. the goal is really to inform people of already decided upon projects in advance of the project occurring but not with not with much room for changing or stopping the project. And I'll just note that one kind of like uh, and one example of what what why I call these superficial and technocratic is that participants in these community participants are only allowed to even have their like complaints or questions or comments like fully incorporated in the resulting report if they meet some standard of technical kind of specificity or technical knowledge. So there was a claim, kind of implicit claim on the part of government and corporations that most of the comments and complaints and concerns that communities have are like, not really legitimate, because they don't really understand the technicalities of how a tailings basin is monitored over time, or whatever technical aspect of a mining project, let's say. Um, but what you see when you kind of delve into these reports and the proceedings of these information sessions is that systematically community concerns are sidelined, um, are given weak responses, um, are just really not addressed in any substantive way, and the project moves forward and only doesn't if communities resort to other means of resistance, right? Within that information session setting, there really aren't tools or veto power possibilities for communities, but they can in effect veto projects. And this has happened in Ecuador by using forms of direct action, resistance um, uh, strategies, and also interestingly by organizing their own consultations that are more democratic in nature, at least according to communities perception of democracy. Um, And so sometimes side by side with the state information sessions or the corporate information sessions, communities, self-organized consultations where they actually allow themselves to vote and actually say, no, we don't want this. And that, you know, in and of itself will not stop a project, but it is part of a broader process of resistance that if it includes direct action, blockades, um, you know, the election of an anti-mining, you know, city council, you know, whatever, all of these different tactics that movements use, if it's part of a multifaceted strategy, we've seen projects completely stall out in ecuador um extracted projects while others move forward right so it's always context dependent but but yeah this sort of battle over who the people are who gets to decide are projects in the national interest are they in the local interest um you know all of this got kind of contested um um on this terrain of of democracy really of 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 who rules and who's in charge and who gets to have a say
0: yeah, so let's talk about democracy, because I think the government's democratic claim is maybe one that's more familiar to those of us who live in a representative democracy like the United States, where, you know, they're saying we were democratically elected. We're trying to benefit the whole country with this money we make from oil. You know, it's it's anti-democratic for a minority to try to block this project that is going to help the majority. Um, but the the indigenous groups and the anti-extractivists kind of say this is a, a simplistic version of democracy and it means something different to them. So can you kind of spell out more, I know you touched on it earlier, but spell out more the, the nature of the democratic claim that they're making?
1: Sure. Um, and I want to do my best to kind of present each of these versions of democracy as as having some legitimacy to them. And I think, you know, it's the way in which they got counterposed that um, became problematic, actually, for both sides of, of the issue of, of, of the divide, let's say, but I'll, I'll come to that at the end of, of my answer. Um so yes, you're absolutely right that the that the Korea government's version of democracy is one that's very familiar, kind of textbook we might call it, and also again has its own kind of l- l- sense of legitimacy, and and I think that you know many would would recognize it as the legitimate form of democracy, which is representative democracy through that takes place through elections, the competition of political parties, um, and that you know this sort of Deeper sense, though, too, that, like, the left can and should come to power through majority rule. Um, And this counterposes it both to, like, an anarchist left that doesn't believe in contesting on the terrain of the state. Um, but also to a sort of maybe illiberal or le- oral and or less democratic left that like, or and or revolutionary left that like does want to seize the state, but doesn't per se believe in doing so through like bourgeois democracy. So counterpost to both of those is a version of leftism that sees winning durable majorities and winning election after election and delivering what you promised so that you keep winning. And also because that's the democratic thing to do, as like the route to left power. And I want to frame it that way because I want it to feel recognizable to listeners that might be DSA members or might participate in some other movement or might be thrilled about like Justice Democrat stuff or, you know, having leftists like AOC in office. Like, this is their, in many ways, their conception of democracy, too. And and also their conception of the route to left power. And so it's not, it's DSA not. The DSA
0: is the Democratic Socialist. Yes, in America.
1: Sorry about that. You know, so you know, if we are socialists or leftists or insurgents or sort of radicals, but we want to win elections, like we have to have a theory of change that involves, you know, uh, you know, recruiting candidates that involves like canvassing, base building, all of this stuff. But the goal is like we're going to get into office and we're going to deliver the goods. And that was Korea's kind of understanding of democracy. But what's important to emphasize, and this is where we can get into more of a critique of Korea. Um, is that he had a very national and kind of homogenous understanding of the, quote, people that had put him into office. So in his view, he was in office because the people, broadly speaking, without any internal heterogeneity or diversity or whatever, like the people writ large, had voted him in office. And that means also the people um, supported all of his policies and approved of everything he did. And it was a compelling argument because not only did he win landslide after landslide election, I mean, he really pulled off elections well. Um, He also did address, to greater or lesser degrees, a lot of popular demands, as I've already discussed, with some real results in terms of poverty alleviation, etc., as i already discussed. And he also had like really high approval ratings, like historically high, like Ecuadorians historically don't like politicians, like even, you know, the ones they've elected in office, but he had really high popularity ratings, um, until like the end of his term. And we could get into that, but, but let's just say for most of his time in power, he did. And so this kind of felt very, it's like an internally coherent kind of understanding, but it's also one, and that has a lot of evidence, right? But it's also one that really papers over a few different things. One is internal diversity, heterogeneity, and also inequality within the, quote, people. And I think this is most salient when we talk about the historic oppression uh, and super exploitation, dispossession, and marginalization, and those are all kind of distinct harms, so I want to name all of them, of indigenous people in Ecuador and in Latin America and in the Americas, right, uh, in general. And so what this kind of understanding of a monolithic and homogenous people papers over is that there is a real difference if you are indigenous, um, live in an indigenous community, there's a difference in how the political and economic and social system treats you. But there are also more positively a difference, potentially, and in many cases, actually, a difference in how your community relates to the land, uh, what types of livelihoods, um, and also cultural practices um, are common, right? So they're, you know, so first is we paper over difference in a way that can reproduce inequality, um, by not kind of addressing the historic harm, um, and contemporary harm, uh, visited on indigenous people. The other thing though, somewhat relatedly is that practices that I view and, um, also Ecuadorian activists view, um, As really democratic in a substantive sense, like organizing grassroots movements, um, like having community meetings where you decide what's important to you, uh, where you might draw up a plan or a vision for how your community should be organized or governed or how resources should be allocated. Like, to me... Non-state, it's not that I'm anti-state, I'm not. I mean, I'm on the public record being someone that's supportive of, of electoral strategies for the left, for sure. But I don't think those electoral strategies or electoral democracy exhausts democracy. And I think that the only way to have a vibrant left, and also one that can keep winning, keep recruiting people, and also have real change in the world, is to also include democratic practices that may or may not occur through state institutions or through formal forms of participation like voting. And Correa, maybe he wouldn't have been skeptical of those practices if they all resulted in support for his government. But the fact that the movements engaging in these small D kind of democratic practices and radical democratic practices, were also doing so in ways that um, um, opposed or critiqued his policies, he began to identify this kind of demand for participatory substantive democracy as like a threat to his more formal institutional, um, electoral and representative form of democracy. And so, you know, on the one hand, that's tragic, as I said, because I don't think it's not inherent that representative democracy and the democracy of the streets or the movement or the meeting space are opposed to one another. I see them as interlinked. And in fact, in the in the um, trajectory of Korea's rise to power, they are because it was only that movement activity that opened up the space for a leftist to be elected in the first place. But they did become counterposed because they became attached to different political projects around the question of extraction. And in that context, Korea became it at the nice end dismissive and at the more concerning end repressive of some of these uh, democratic practices that sustained movements that were uh, mobilizing against some of his policies.
0: Yeah. And I think the, there's two, two aspects of this small D democracy that are, are powerful to me. And the first is what you mentioned of sort of creates more space for actual discussion and deliberation and, and, you know coming up with ideas beyond beyond just what you get to do in a voting booth um and also something you mentioned in the book is that the claim made by some of these indigenous groups was was not necessarily just for themselves but um you know who gets to vote is people who who live in that polity who who are of voting age and obviously are are human um and the indigenous groups were sort of also, in some ways, representing what they saw as the interests of non-human nature, what they saw as the interests of sort of globally people who would be affected by by oil use, um, future generations, stuff like that. So, yeah, I think I think it's it's worth thinking about what what other forms of democracy besides again not to say never go vote. I think it's important to vote, but what other forms of democracy can add that aren't necessarily represented only through voting.
1: Yeah, and I, 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 I agree with, with that. Um, and I also just yeah, highlight something you said earlier in your, your comment there that I think what is, what is interesting about these different visions of democracy is, is, despite actually some of the ways I frame them for just simplicity's sake, um, they don't perfectly map on to a particular scale. Um, the, the Korea government's version of democracy is very national in its scale, but he also cared a lot about the outcomes of local elections. And he also cared a lot about the political support of particular communities and localities and provinces. Right. So it, but, but when he talked about the people, it was national. That's what he meant. El pueblo, like as a national demos, um, democratic subject, the, affected communities and indigenous people and peasants and environmentalists that resisted these projects and that had their own version of democracy that we've already discussed. We might just say, oh, they were localists or less sympathetically, we might say they're nimbies. They don't want these projects near them, but these projects have greater benefit." Um, But that is not satisfying. I mean, A, NIMBY is like never, I don't think a good analysis. Um, uh, um, uh, Even when that's kind of is what's going on. I don't like the term because it's just way too simplifying. And it puts very unlike things together. But I think more importantly, um, I don't think they were just localist for the reasons you suggested. And for some additional reasons, like, you know, one, as you already said, preserving biodiversity um, stopping projects that do have a big climate impact, both at their point of extraction, but as in the case of oil, obviously, as this point of condu- combustion somewhere else in the supply chain. Um, uh, preventing projects like that is positive for the climate. Um, that's what, So there's a planetary like horizon, let's say, to these local struggles. Um, but also because most of the, or if not all, of the successful movements and campaigns, meaning... Uh, Uh, movements and campaigns that achieve some or all of their goals, um, they are embedded in multi-layered, spatially complex networks, whether it's the fact that that local community might be officially a base community of the National Indigenous Federation, whether it's the fact that this environmental movement might be a member of a transnational network of radical environmental movements or anti-mining movements. Right. And we could go case by case, but, but almost always they um, draw inspiration from, and also contribute to uh, activism that is more um, uh, kind of geographically much broader than the locality in question. And so, you know, I think that then raises interesting questions that we don't need to go into, but just to sort of plant the seed about like, you know, what type of activism, what scale and geography of activism is adequate to confronting environmental and climate disaster, right? You know, is it about local movements that experience the most direct impacts um, or local communities, frontline communities often called? Is it about how those frontline communities are embedded in multi-scalar networks? Is it about like a global movement, you know, of coordinated action, you know, like the student strike stuff? you know, and so all of these are options and they also overlap with one another. But I think the nature of environmental and climate harm is such that it admits of both local, national, and also like global scales of action. But, uh, you know, how those are precisely combined, I think is important to understanding the success of, of different movements.
0: Yeah, and I think that sort of global climate and environmental impact is part of what makes it, I think, easy for me at least as a leftist and an environmentalist in the United States to to really side with this anti-extraction movement because you know more oil is is bad in so many ways um and also obviously seeking to support indigenous groups but I understand you're working on a book now about an issue that in some ways anyway is is a bit thornier uh which is lithium mining um which lithium is used among other places in Batteries for electric vehicles. so can you tell us a little more about what drew you to to look at lithium?
1: Um, I, I can and I think it's just uh, I am uh, I was saying this in a different interview recently, but I'll just kind of mention it now, um, which is that I, I am interested in the topic of extraction for the left in general, and I think it it just poses a lot of challenges. I think in the context of Ecuador, What's challenging about extraction, and this is really worth saying, and I didn't have an earlier opportunity to mention it, so I will now. Um, What's challenging and why it's divisive on the left and also so salient and kind of contentious is that there are just limited options at the scale of Ecuador um, to undergo like a social, ecological, economic transformation that would render Ecuador non-dependent anymore on the extraction and export of primary um, resources. Um, it's hard to imagine that because Ecuador, like so many countries in the global South, is trapped in a global hierarchy, in relations of debt, in unequal economic and ecological exchange. And I'm just throwing all these wonky terms out there, but folks can look them up and get a sense of what I mean. But I just want to sort of dramatize that Ecuador doesn't freely make choices without constraints about how to, you know, the Ecuadorian government, let's say, about how to govern the economy or about what sectors or how much capital or how to allocate this or that, like it is just deeply constrained in so many ways. And so part of the tragedy of this divide on the left is that, um, is that, is that constraint, right. But also part of what produced the divide, I think were, were that the government again, went for the option that is most obvious, which is continuing with extraction or extractivism while movements increasingly radicalized against it. Um, So that's the challenge of extraction for the left on the peripheries of the global economy. There's another challenge of extraction for the left everywhere, not just on the world's peripheries, but also importantly there, um, which is the challenge of the relationship between extraction and renewable energy. And so we know that in order to rapidly um, address climate change at the scale that the crisis requires, we need to quickly and hopefully justly and equitably transition to uh, a renewable energy system out and leave fossil fuels in the ground. So this is like the key demand of climate justice movements everywhere, leave it in the ground, transition to renewable energy, but it needs to be a just transition, right? So that's the kind of, you know, this is familiar to Green New Deal, you know, all sorts of environmental, uh, climate justice, social movements around the world. Um, This sort of One issue, I should say, there are many challenges of that, of the transition and and how it's playing out. So I don't want to say that this is the issue, but I think a very interesting one is to look at, well, how is a renewable energy system actually built? How do you electrify vast sectors of the economy, connect those electrified sectors to a renewable energy grid, store renewable energy, um, which is intermittent, um, travel via renewable energy, whether, regardless of the mode of travel, right? How do you actually get the whole system, the whole economy, right, beyond the energy sector, the entire economy to run on renewables so that there's zero emissions? There's a lot of engineering challenges, technical challenge, there's obviously the challenge of political will, I mean, we could get into each of these. But the one that I focus on in my current work is that in order to produce what are called green or clean technologies, like Electric vehicles, like lithium batteries that are in those vehicles, uh, like wind turbines, um, solar panels, etc. In order to produce those technologies, uh, extracted minerals, extracted metals are necessary. They are like the beginning of the supply chain, which is now, now everyone knows what supply chains are, which makes my job easier uh, because they're not functioning very well right now. So there's been a lot of news coverage of them. But anyway, so at the beginning of the supply chain to make a solar panel, to make an electric vehicle, to make a lithium battery are mined materials. And we've just spent, you know, almost an hour speaking about how subsurface um, mined, you know, materials are, can be sites of major social and political conflict, have major forms of social and environmental harm, are also potentially very lucrative for corporations, can sometimes be key revenue streams for states, right? And so we get the idea as to why they can be conflictual, high stakes, strategic. And it is, I think, interesting to think about the fact that um, while we are leaving behind fossil fuel extraction, the new renewable energy green economy does involve its own forms of extraction and actually very um, high levels of extraction, at least in the transition phase. So in order to totally, you know, rebuild the economy, um, uh, society, the built environment, um, all, there there is potentially very high demand. And already we're seeing this for some of the key minerals. I focus on lithium. Um, but we could tell some similar stories about cobalt, nickel, copper, um, and and rare earths and, and several others. Um, and I think, you know, this is something that climate justice and environmental justice and indigenous justice uh, activists around the world are confronting and thinking about. At the same time that that states and corporations and like sort of geopolitical, you know, relationships are being kind of reformed and, and reshaped, also. So it's it's a really wide open kind of terrain where a lot of different groups and actors and states and firms have different interests and are kind of vying for different, you know, visions of transformation on the sides of movement and forms of control and domination and extraction on the sides of states and firms. Um, and so that's what I'm looking at through the lens of lithium. And I'll just note one thing, you know, because I could say we could do a whole other podcast on that. So I'm not going to go everywhere but with it. But I want to just mention one thing because I think it relates to uh, a few things we've already talked about or kind of actually what we were just talking about, which is that one of the interesting things about the lithium sector right now, lithium, by the way, is a key ingredient in lithium batteries. Those are the rechargeable batteries in your laptop, but also in an EV and also used for grid storage. Um, and lithium is thus far like a non-substitutable ingredient in those batteries. Um, so it's, it's, it's like really in the eyes of, of states and firms that are thinking about, uh, the green transition and how to secure their supply chains. And, you know, so lithium, you know, very quote, strategic or critical mineral. Um, And what's interesting about this, about the lithium sector and about the politics of it and the movements, um, uh, around it is that while, you know, historically and to the present, there are particular places in the world that, that, uh, where lithium is extracted. Um, and a couple of them are in Latin America, which is why I started researching it. And Chile is, is the, is a big lithium producer in particular. Um, Despite the fact that there's, you know, some places are producing lithium and many other places are not, um, that is likely to change because global north governments, the US and Europe, are really interested in what is called onshoring, which just means like bringing a sector to your shores, right, to your territory, in onshoring lithium extraction. The US has one lithium mine in operation, Europe has like a few in operation. Um, But they want many more. Um, And what this is doing, and this is like a nice, maybe full circle a little bit with what what we were talking about, about the sort of scale and geography of activism. What this is doing is globalizing protest against lithium, right? For the past decade or so, most protest against lithium mining, because it also has environmental, uh, social harms, like any kind of mining does. Um, has a lot of it's just been in Chile, primarily, there are other places lithium is extracted, but it's been the most contentious in Chile, um, which is why I went there first to study it. Um, But now there's been protests everywhere that there's new lithium projects, Um, there are there's really intense protests right now in in the US um, around planned lithium projects in Nevada, there was such intense protest in Serbia, that a contract was canceled uh just recently a couple weeks ago so there's major protest it is transnationally coordinated not saying that it's like planned in a central room of activists but that activists from these different places are in the same meeting spaces coalitional spaces they share ideas they learn from one another it is like very internationalist but also firmly rooted in place because the lithium mine affects a particular community particular sets of livelihoods etc um um, that gives it a really interesting kind of spatial and multiscalar char- character that builds on prior waves of anti-extractive protests, like, importantly, the ones that I talk about in Ecuador, which were part of a broader, you know, kind of set of movements in Latin America. But it, it, it it's even more global in some ways than those. Um, and but it, it builds on them. So so it sort of builds on some of the processes I talk about in my book. But um, in resource radicals, excuse me. But but is sort of oriented to the new green economy, contesting its extractive foundations, um, and envisioning a less extractive version of the energy transition, um, and what that might look like.
0: Yes. Yeah, so, what might that look like? In your you co-authored a book uh, called "The Planet to Win" um, semi recently as well, and one of the issues that raises is, you know, we can build out mass transit and, you know, increase density and walkability and bikeability of cities and, uh, you know, pretty significantly potentially decrease the reliance on cars of any type, including electric vehicles, which would at least reduce demand for for batteries, but it doesn't eliminate, you know, electric buses still use batteries, laptops, as you mentioned, use them. There's, uh, what does, you know, when we, when we talk about movements for post extractivism can you know can you imagine a world that is beyond extraction what does that look like how does how do we think about that in terms of the transition we're in now Um,
1: so that's a really interesting point that you landed on at the end of your question uh which is like is it possible to have a world without extraction um i think it's important to have some daylight or space between what we might call extractivism and extraction um i am not sure that a world without extraction um understood as like the appropriation of materials resources um etc from nature and the use of them including non-renewable resources right um, I don't know that that is possible. Uh, you know, it stretches my imagination a little bit. I'm happy to entertain it, right? But I'm not sure that we can have human society, even a radically different human society, right? Um, without, without appropriation. Um, I don't think, you know, and what would that look like? I mean, the sort of imaginary that often gets counterposed to like our reliance on nature itself has lots of problems and elisions like a kind of idea of totally technical, like a totally, um, like synthesized out of a lab kind of society. I mean, there's just not a way. And I don't think the goal of indigenous movements insofar as I understand them, and I don't want to speak for them, but just have learned from them. Right. Is not like no interaction with nature. It's not that at all. It's about totally transforming the relationships and the relationalities right with nature. Um, so and and one mode of interacting with nature is removing something from nature, but everything about the context and, and the relations and the terms under which that occurs matters for whether or not we call it extractivism, which I take to be a predatory, rapacious, oftentimes violent, and just extremely consumptive um, version of extraction, right? It is one that is tied deeply to capitalism to racial capitalism to imperialism it subjects particular communities and ecosystems to extreme levels of harm while benefiting people far removed from those communities and ecosystems um it leaves sacrifice zones in its wake um there is really very little limit on extraction aside from you know whatever capitalism or particular sector demands at the moment in terms of natural inputs I think extractivism can and should be uh, critiqued, uh, targeted, and dismantled. Um, I don't know that I can envision a society in which there's zero extraction. I can envision, though, a society of radically less extraction. And I think such a society would not be extractivist, would not have as its logic, like the unending, infinite taking from nature and leaving harm in its wake. Um, And that is, you know, though, of course, communities and movements that are opposing a mine or an oil project or agribusiness or a dam, use stark and militant language and say that they are against maybe not just this mine, but mining, right? And that is, I think, you know there's a power to that, to that vision, to that rhetoric, to that strategy. Um, and I, and I mean that literally, meaning I, I do think, and there's research that supports this, that clear and strident demands um, and, and really um, militant opposition, I think gets communities more of their demands, whether it ends up stalling the project altogether, or it ends up really transforming the, the regulation of the project or whatever. Or the economic dividends, or who benefits from them, I think that they, 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 um, they win more, and they um, uh, see more of their demands met with that militant position, right? So what I'm saying right now is not a comment on what movements should be demanding or how they should frame their language, um, but I think that it's worth thinking, especially as we move into a renewable energy system, of what types of extraction are completely. Dispensable, like we can totally dispense with them, like all fossil fuel extraction for sure. You know, I would put lots of other extractive industries on that list, like gold mining, like the vet which you mentioned earlier. Like the vast majority of gold is not only like not even for like jewelry, and like you know, the very small minority of gold is for like some actual application that matters, like electronics or something. Another small percentage of gold is for like jewelry and stuff that doesn't matter, and we could just make illegal. But like, I don't know if it's 90%, whatever, some huge proportion of gold extraction is just to sit in, you know, cubes of gold, right? Um, and so it's like, there's some extraction that is like purely um, predatory, like it doesn't produce anything meaningful, it produces no use value. And, um, and then some is just inherently harmful, like fossil fuel extraction. So we could go down the list, and we could eliminate a lot of sectors or economic activities. And then we would still have to confront, well, what about the lithium for an electric bus? Um, as you put it, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna answer that question. I actually don't, if I had an easy answer to that question, I think you probably shouldn't trust me. Um, Because I think that, you know, it's, 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 and this is what I argue in a recent piece in foreign policy, it's, it's like, It's a political economic question, like what's going to determine that is like a balance of class and political forces at like erupting in multiple parts of the global economy over the kind of shape of the green future. Right. So that's not for me to kind of just give you a, a clear answer to. But I absolutely think that the more that we can design the energy transition to be less resource intensive, radically less resource intensive than it's currently being designed. Um, The more that we can consume um, through public goods, collective forms of consumption, social forms of consumption, the less our consumption is individualist and highly unequal, the less resources we use and the more each of those resources extracted with their impacts benefits more people. Um, The more that we can think about deeper reorganizations of the global economy so that it's not always that some people deal with the harms of extraction and other people benefit from the final commodities produced. Right. Um, So just thinking about the structure of global supply chains or value chains, thinking about um, how much the volume and rate of extraction being very tied to like the type of transition that is designed. um, And then thinking of the social and environmental terms that govern extractive zones as being the outcomes of conflict. And so the more communities are empowered with rights with um, regulation, with with um, participatory institutions, the more they can um, uh, sort of enact their vision of what their local landscape should look like and be used for, and so it's out of that kind of mess of of um, of processes and and visions and and actual design of systems that we can create an energy system that is not just not fossil fuels, but also departs from some of the forms of oppression and inequality and attractivism that mark fossil capitalism.
0: Yeah, um, thank you so much. And I look forward to working on building that system uh, with, with all of you. So yeah, these are fascinating questions and, and sticky, but crucial for, for the climate movement to start engaging with now so yeah thank you so much for coming on the show
1: no problem thanks for the great questions um, it was a pleasure
0: that was Thea Riofrancos and I am Dayton Martindale uh, if you are interested in these topics or want to engage about them uh, you can find either of us on Twitter and again her book is Resource Radicals from Petro-Nationalism to Post-Extractivism in Ecuador have a good day